History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after-show podcast where we look back at the most recent out-of-office episode, Snacks in Uganda, during 1990-2000. So if you haven't listened to that, do go back and check it out, or else there will be spoilers ahead. What was that? <laughs> Dracula just leant out of his coffin. <laughs> Sorry, that was that was me reclining in my chair. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir, and I am here in the HHE studio with the crunchy nuts to my soggy biscuit. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. I am indeed a tasty snack, Ryan. You are indeed, and I would snack on you. Oh, that's getting weird. So move on. <laughs> <laughs> And we are joined, as ever, by the delightfully doughy dandy, the judge himself, it's Mr. Paul Dursley. Well, I don't think I'd want a nibble of that. (laughs) (laughs) Very wise. Now, Peter, I have spent the past week gorging myself silly on ground nuts and apple bananas, and as such, I've forgotten everything that happened in our last out-of-office episode. So, would you remind me what happened in, let's say, 60 seconds? I won't make a meal of it. When would you like me to do it? Well, I'd like you to do it... now. We travelled to East Africa to the landlocked nation of Uganda, home of moon trees, moon mountains and equatorial snow. We snacked on Ugandan goodies while we learned about Hasmuk Dorda, the East African Willy Wonka who started from nothing and built a business empire on excellent edibles. And we discovered the flavour of Kabbalah Gala, the steamy banana pancakes guaranteed to get the taste buds tingling, and which gave their name to a region in Kampala. It was the 90s, it was snacks, it was Oh Uganda. Last week's episode done, summarised nicely, nice one son, now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of the he'll take you apart without any care, he's the lovely Paul Dursley, the lovely Paul Dursley. Oh yes, of course, I remember Peter, and what an episode it was. From both you and from me, a delightfully tasty snack of an episode. But what does it matter what we think, Pete? We are here for the opinion of just one man, and that man is Judge Dursley. So, Paul, before we get to your final verdict, why don't you give us your first impressions on snacks in Uganda during 1990-2000? First of all, you shock me as I wasn't expecting to do this. (laughs) (laughs) I must admit, I didn't think you wanted me to listen to your out-of-office episodes. However, fortunately for you, I religiously listened to all of your episodes. So, at very short notice, I have deemed to help you out. By religiously listen, Paul, do you mean you listen to it going, oh, God. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> well, yes, that, that, is a, that, is a ver- that is a very good metric, I think, to measure an episode by. Well, to answer your question, what's the size of Uganda? Um, about the size of a France. No, 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 no. What's the size in square miles? Oh, man, it was a long time ago, but I don't remember. 
Because I think you've got it mixed up. Oh, what, Buganda? Have I got Buganda and Luganda? <laughs> no, no I, I, th- I think you've mi- mixed up with kilometres and miles. Oh, did I give the wrong measurement? Yeah. Oh, this is all going wrong, Pete. I'm bringing us down. <laughs> Uganda's a small country, so it's nowhere near the size of France. Yeah, I, I may have got it wrong, Pete. I, th- I think you, you, you got the square miles and square kilometres mixed up. That is entirely uh, possible and something I could be prone to do. So I apologise to Because I think the factor is about 2.3, looking it up. Ugh, and right. the factor between square miles and square kilometres is, as you would know, yeah. 1.6 squared. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maths yeah, yeah, yeah. has never been my strong point, <laughs> or geography, oh. or history. Or no. podcasting. <laughs> oh. Okay. Okay. Uh, and what's your what's your job, by the way? <laughs> Look, what I can do is grease the wheels here a little bit, Pete, because I have brought with me gifts. Yay! You know, I was inspired by you bringing some snacks from that supermarket. Where was that again? That Ugandan supermarket near you? That was the Owino supermarket in Mitcham, South London. Yeah, it was brilliant. And um, thank you to them for uh, giving you all of those snacks for us to try. You never sent me any of the things. Well, we weren't expecting to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, now, now it comes out. Now it comes out. (laughs) Anyway, right. I have some Britannia biscuits. Hey. I actually have some Britannia biscuits. I went out and got some. Okay, so I'm going to, um, I'm going to try the choco cookie. Um, Pete, try one of these butter cookies. All right. Mmm. That, that is a try, but very crunchy. (laughs) Chocolate cookie. It tastes chocolatey. Kind of salty, but um, good. Uh, Pete, Salt? you try the butter cookies. Here you go. All right. Come on, Pete, get it open. <laughs> Whip it out. Bear right, with okay. me. All right, Pete, describe it. Oh, that is a circular cookie with what looks like, uh, I would have called that a sort of Mesoamerican symbology on it, but yeah, it does. maybe I'm mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> so Ugandan hieroglyphs. <laughs> All right, here goes. Don't choke like you did on the last one, Pete. Okay. More dryness is the characteristic here, but also buttery, so uh, a balance. I would say delicious, but do have a drink to hand. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Nice. Okay, so let's get started, shall we, with some additional facts. Yes. Because we received some feedback, Pete. Did we? Yeah, we did. And that was that we missed out on the most popular of Ugandan street foods. Uh, So I thought I would bring it here to the verdict and give it its due. Well, I'm all ears. So the snack is called the Rolex. Okay. Not the uh, luxury watch that uh, you might wear, but a tasty snack. Uh, It consists of an omelette stuffed with chopped cabbage, tomatoes, onions and peppers, which is then wrapped in a steaming hot chapati flatbread. Let me stop you there. That sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I really want one. It sounds really good, yeah, and I'm very tempted to make one myself. Uh, the name Rolex, though, uh, you'd think of the watch, but it actually comes from the Luganda language. Yes, I know what you're thinking, Pete. Buganda, <laughs> Uganda, and Luganda. <laughs> 
Uh, nothing confusing at all about any of that. <laughs> yeah. well, the, the, that's, it's obviously a pigeon, isn't it, of some sort? Exactly. Rolled eggs. Rolex. That's where it comes from. How about that? That's kind of cool. So it emerged as a street food back in the 1980s when a chapati seller in the Bazoga region started selling them as like a, an affordable, quick takeaway meal. But it was all thanks to students who were living nearby at the Macarere University. They uh, obviously stumbled upon this food stall, as students will often want to do, looking for cheap, easy food. And uh, they took it back to their university dorms, spread the word, and everybody started buying the Rolex. And since then, countless Rolex stands across both rural and urban Uganda. So, uh, now, sorry, yeah. what, how do you tell the difference between a real Rolex and a fake Rolex? <laughs> but yeah, so competition starts to heat up amongst all of these different sellers. And so they start getting creative. Uh, new variations have popped up, like the Titanic, which is the same omelette thing, but wrapped with two chapatis. And the Kiko Mando, uh, where the chapati gets sliced like sushi and then stirred into a bean stew. But yeah, all sorts of new ingredients are added to the Rolex and you can buy them today with chicken and beef and avocado and all sorts. So they're the fake Rolex. They're the fake Rolex, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, one YouTuber called Raymond Kahuma, he recently broke the world record for the largest ever Rolex. It's a mega snack, Pete, that required a team of 60 chefs working 14 straight hours to make it. And in the end, it was two and a half metres long. It weighed 204 kilos and it contained 1,200 eggs and 90 kilos of vegetables. And it fed three students. <laughs> In fact, the Rolex has become such an iconic street food across Uganda, um, it's actually started to make an economic difference to the country. Uh, so many vendors and suppliers get involved in the industry of the Rolex that the price of the Rolex is seen as a micro-indicator of the country's financial success. So a standard Rolex sells for about a 1,000 Ugandan shillings, or 28 US cents. But over the past two years, the prices of ingredients like wheat and oil have gone up, thanks in part to um, the imports from South America, where weather has been damaging crops, but also the war in Ukraine, where the price of wheat has risen. And so, yeah, the price of the ingredients has gone up, which means that the price of a Rolex has nearly doubled and customers just basically can't afford these new price hikes. And so sales have declined in the Rolex and the vendors have started to protest, resulting in the Ugandan president, Yawari Museveni, getting involved. He controversially tweeted, telling people to stop complaining and suggested that they use locally grown cassava instead of chapatis um, to save on the imported wheat. But that proved pretty unpopular with people. They want their <laughs> regular wheat chapatis. And so the Rolex price keeps going up and the snack now evolves away from being a street food and it's become a mainstay in menus in restaurants. So people are going to restaurants now to get their traditional Rolex but paying the additional price for it. And that is is why we didn't talk about it in the episode, because it's a restaurant <laughs> item and not a snack. <laughs> that makes perfect sense, Ryan. Thank you. <laughs> so what were the cheaper ones called? Omegas or something? <laughs> <laughs> or Timex. Timex. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Pete, what have you got? 
Well, Ryan, I've sort of bypassed snakes slightly because you called the country of Uganda the Pearl of Africa, I believe. I did, yeah, and the Switzerland of Africa. Yes, well, I bypassed the Switzerland part and I homed in on the Pearl of Africa. Now, I had assumed that it was basically the Ugandan marketing authority saying, let's give ourselves a fancy nickname. But actually, it wasn't even Ugandan people at all who gave the area that name. Now, the first thing I came across was that it was perhaps Winston Churchill who called it the Pearl of Africa. In 1907, he visited Uganda, and like everyone of us does after a foreign holiday, he published a book about his travels. I don't know, I'm sure you do the same thing, Ryan, after your trip to the Costa del Sol. I do. So he wrote a book called My African Journey in 1908, and he wrote in that book, for magnificence, for variety of form and colour, for profusion of brilliant life, bird, insect, reptile, beast, for vast scale, you Uganda is truly the Pearl of Africa. Wow, and that's where it came from. How about that? No, it does not, Ryan. What? I'm glad you pointed that out. <laughs> Come on. Uh, you, you may set have set me up. <laughs> you may have heard that last bit is in fact the Pearl of Africa part of that was in quotes. So where did he get it from? None other than Henry Morton Stanley, our explorer friend famous for the phrase Dr Livingstone, I presume. How about that? So the book The Missionary Heroes of Africa by James Home Morrison says, on November 15th, 1875, way before Churchill, a remarkable letter appeared in the Daily Telegraph written by Stanley in Uganda. Stanley speaks of Uganda as the Pearl of Africa. Hmm, nice. Yeah, very nice. So that itself got me thinking of how countries get these nicknames and what other areas, uh, countries in that area might have nicknames of their own. So I found a few more. So Nigeria is apparently the giant of Africa. Okay. Malawi is the warm heart of Africa. Oh. That's nice, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Gambia is the smiling coast of Africa, they say. Uh, okay. Then st- things get a little bit more qualified. Apparently Djibouti is called the Pearl of the Gulf of Tajura. It's not as catchy, is it? A, it's not as catchy. B, it is the only country in the Gulf of Tajura. (laughs) (laughs) So, that seems a little... But I didn't know that, and so I was impressed. (laughs) Yeah, I guess they've done a good job there. And it gets a bit bit Ikea like that after this. Cameroon is the hinge of Africa, and Ghana is the gateway to Africa. The hinge of Africa, that's not great, is it? Not brilliant, but it gets worse. (laughs) It gets a bit anatomical now. Mali, the eyes of Africa... What? Ethiopia, the Horn of Africa. I like that. Yeah. And then rather harshly, poor old Chad, stuck in the middle, is known as the Dead Heart of Africa. (laughs) (laughs) So it has a warm heart and a dead heart. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. The Dead Heart. (laughs) Who came up with that? It's brutal, isn't it? I don't know. It's because it's quite deserty, I believe. But uh, it's pretty brutal, isn't it? Oh, my God. (laughs) I think we could call Croydon that as well. The Dead Heart of London. <laughs> That's not fair. It's not in the heart. It's the dead leg of London, if anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I told you both the story of Hasmuk Dorda, his entrepreneurial rise from hawking biscuits door to door to running House of Dorda, the company behind the Ugandan line of Britannia brand biscuits, which I have right here. Yum. Also dry. Yum, yum. Also a bit dry. Are they sponsoring this episode? You seem to be mentioning them quite a lot. Although you won't like it, Paul, because it's spelt Britannia spelt with one N. Mm, it should be one T and two Ns. Well, yeah. we've lost another point. Thanks, Dorda. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, look, thing is, right, when I was doing my research, there was two entrepreneurs that I had to choose between telling you stories about. So 
There is another Ugandan businessman. He was born in North Sudan in 1976. His name is Mohamed Hamid. Uh, he travelled to Uganda when he was just 11 years old to visit with his older brother. His older brother was running this successful trading company and so he just went to go and live with him there. But he fell in love with the country and he decided to stay. He became a Ugandan citizen and when he got a little bit older he joined his brother's company and he worked there until the early 1990s when he started his first company, Pan-Africa commodities. And that was where he started to import all sorts of things, things like car tyres and fruit juices, before eventually focusing in on wheat, uh, which he turned into chapatis, which then sold across the country. So profits started to roll in. He became a millionaire. And in 1997, he had enough money to buy 15 acres of land in Kawempe, which is a suburb of Kampala. There he built a factory, which uh, milled wheat, baked bread, snacks and confectionaries. In the year 2000, he got a loan and he built more mills and he expanded his baking empire to include biscuits. Now, this generated enough money for him to diversify into haulage, eventually building the largest hauler business in the East and Central African region. He had a fleet of hundreds of heavy-duty trucks. He then opened an investment firm, a luxury five-star hotel. He became involved in real estate and mining. And by 2015, he was named on the Forbes list as the second richest Ugandan with a net worth of around 200 million US dollars. Wow. Good on him. Yeah. It always amazes me when someone goes, I'm good at baking biscuits and selling them. I think I'll open a mine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he got so big and powerful that he even had the ear of the president, supposedly being able to call him any time he wanted and have him attend to his problems instantly. But unfortunately, this is where Mohammed's success story falters, because in 2017, he was investigated over allegations of sexual abuse from a female employee charges he was later cleared of. But he was arrested again in 2022 over allegations of assaulting and torturing his housemaid. Allegedly, he hit her on the head with his pistol and forcefully undressed her and touched her private parts. A year later, in 2023, he discovered the body of his 25-year-old son, Dodie, who had died in his sleep in their family home. And just three months after that, he was taken to court for failing to pay government taxes, loans and utility bills that in total amounted to around 300 million US dollars. Obviously, he was unable to pay off all of these debts. And so Mohammed, then aged 47, was declared bankrupt and all his businesses liquidated. Since then, a number of his employees have come forward with allegations of abuse, including one supervisor from his biscuit factory who claimed that Hamid was a very unforgiving boss who was prone to beating people at the slightest grievance. That being said, though, it is worth noting that Hamid's public relations officer has been quoted as saying that police have investigated many of these claims and they are not true. So there you go. I leave it up to you what you believe. I think I can see why you chose the other guy's story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ryan, I would like to divert us quite significantly. I got dragged down a rabbit hole, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> okay. So um, one of the things that we didn't mention is that Uganda is home to one of the sources of the River Nile. There are many. It is disputed. 
it's a river. It gets water from a bunch of places. So Diogenes found it. Right, exactly. So the origin of the river is at a place called Jinja in Uganda. It emerges from Lake Victoria. So you can book a trip on that river. And if you do, you might come across a bronze bust of Mahatma Gandhi. Well, I know he was in South Africa. He was in South Africa. I believe he passed through Uganda, but he didn't. He hasn't have significant presence in Uganda. So apparently this bust was put up in 1997 and it denotes an area where the ashes of Gandhi had been placed into the care of the River Nile. Oh, interesting. Well, it gets a lot worse. So this was the, the thread that you tug. You know, you tug a thread and you go, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. So it turns out that when he died, right, that Gandhi was a Hindu, as I'm sure you're aware, and his wishes were that his remains, be, or his ashes in particular, get put into the River Ganges as his tradition and for the religion that he was part of. So what happened was not that. In fact, his ashes got distributed into more than 20 different portions dished out into little jars and sent all around the country some of them even went overseas including this one in uganda so this little bit of his ashes were put into the river nile presumably the idea to be have a bit of gandhi in the great rivers of the world but over and above it going to various areas in india and various notable locations these things just kind of got misplaced and claimed by people is i can't quite figure out how this happened but this guy ended up in a bunch of places including the palace of the arga Khan in Pune in India uh, and also and this one blows my mind in the self-realization fellowship lake shrine in America and this shrine is located on Sunset Boulevard just down the road from Hollywood California wow he they really spread him around the planet so th- this is this is this is medieval holy relics yeah, I guess it is yeah you're right it's what he would have wanted I think we can all agree <laughs> clearly it's not what he wanted <laughs> I mean yeah it's, it goes against everything he specifically requested but that's not the point <laughs> but yeah poor old Gandhi got sifted into different jars sent all around the world and over time he got uh, recovered in various places and has on a number of occasions additional bits of the ashes have been uh, scattered in back into the Ganges and various other places. But there are still at least two known shrines or areas that are holding little bits of uh, Gandhi. I can only say sort of post-mortem hostage. I say we start a GoFundMe to go and sieve these rivers, get him back into one collection of ashes, and then do exactly what he actually asked, put him in the Ganges. Yeah, I'd, I'd support that wholeheartedly, but I think I dare say they would ask a pretty penny for the ashes. But Ryan, inspired by you keeping it on topic and including snacks in Uganda, I, I think you'd need to understand that there is an entire snack section in uh, gandyfoods.com, which is a food retailer. Gandhi Foods. Uh, Gandhi Foods is a, a website when that has a whole section on snacks. So this is snack related. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Not very good for hunger strikes, are they? <laughs> I was going to say, he wasn't very famous for his foods, was he? <laughs> I, w- I once work- broke one of Gandhi's spinning wheels. What? <laughs> well, I, I went to some place, or some friends rented a, a house in the Cotswolds, which had some sort of association with Gandhi, and it seemed he stayed there. I did not think this story was going to start in the Cotswolds, I must admit. <laughs> and... You know, they had a few things and there was a spinning thing that he gave he gave to them there. So I picked it up and managed to... It fell apart. <laughs> yeah, because they were just sort of laying around, you know, with what little labels on. And perhaps they were sort of thinking that, you know, upper-class tourists weren't going to go there and touch things. But, of course, mm. if, you, if you see something like that, you have to touch it, don't you? So what's our take on this? Gandhi, shoddy craftsman. Cheap gift giver. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, Candy. <laughs> oh, we're going to get in so much trouble. <laughs> Right, I have one final story to tell about Ugandan snacks. And uh, this, I'm surprised we didn't talk about this one, actually, either during the episode. But the snack is called nsenin, and that is the local word for grasshoppers. A large number of Ugandans eat grasshoppers as part of their daily diet. Uh, often fried and sprinkled with salt, they make a crunchy snack. And they're nutritious, too. They're high in fiber, contain omega-3 protein. fatty acids. And yes, that's right, full of protein. But one of the more interesting parts about grasshoppers isn't the eating eating them. It's actually the catching of them. So twice a year, between April and May and October to December, months which are called musenin, or month of the grasshopper, swarms are found in Kampala. And so professional trappers go out and set themselves up to collect as many of the grasshoppers as they can during these swarms. And they do this by attaching large corrugated metal sheets to empty oil drums, which themselves are then lined with black plastic bags. And as nighttime comes, they turn on large fluorescent lights and they just wait for the grasshoppers to arrive. And so the grasshoppers, they're attracted to these bright lights, they fly towards them, they hit into the metal sheets and they fall down into the plastic bags where they're then collected. Also, the woes that don't fall into the bags are picked up by children that are employed to run around and collect them. Apparently it's seen <laughs> as like a fun game that you get a bit of money for. And on a good night, it's said that they can fill up to 80 sacks full of grasshoppers. Each sack can be sold for about 60,000 Ugandan shillings, which is about 16 US dollars or £12.50 in British money. But in the past few years, the numbers of grasshoppers in the swarms has dropped. In 2023, last year, the worst year on record for grasshoppers, the catch was way below the 80 sacks that they normally get. The grasshoppers appeared for just seven days out of the month of November. And of those nights, the average catch was just half a sack. So normally they get 80, they were then just getting half a sack. So the Ugandan president, he went back onto Twitter. He seems to be a fan of of X or Twitter. And uh, he wrote, where are they? Climate change, question mark. I wish them good luck. And it might well be climate change. Uh, Some scientists point to a prolonged rainy season as being the the reason why these grasshoppers aren't, uh, aren't appearing. But more realistically, the reduction in their habitat is most likely the cause. And that is due to the destruction of forests, grassland and swamps, with the country losing about a third of its forests just in the last three decades alone. Wow. It's incredible. Wow. I do feel like the Ugandan president could implement more practical interventions than his current approach, which is to tweet at things. Tweet. (laughs) If only there was something I could do. If only I had the power. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, agricultural researchers have said that the clearance of these areas, which, you know, are suitable for grasshoppers for feeding and for breeding, means that their extinction is likely looming. And with the grasshoppers then disappearing, it means that people are going to suffer too. One half sack of grasshoppers is being 
being sold today as much as 400,000 Ugandan shillings. That's 81 pounds. This is an incredible amount. And so that also then means the end of professional grasshopper catchers. So this whole industry will just disappear. But also the other workers as well. Obviously the children that catch the grasshoppers, but also those traders in the markets and the women whose job it is to clean and pluck the grasshoppers, pulling off their wings and legs before they're then sold and cooked. Oh, sad news. Well, I just have to go for locusts instead. Let them eat locusts, said Dursley. <laughs> surely, it's, surely it's a bigger meal, a locust. Have you ever eaten a grasshopper, Pete? He says, knowing I'm, he has. <laughs> having fed him the grasshoppers himself. Yes, I have, and it was fine. <laughs> well, it's a cultural thing. If you mash them up, it doesn't look like anything. It just looks like mince. I understand a lot of that goes into protein powder that all these uh, bodybuilders take. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, fair enough. It's good for you. And so we have come to the end of the line. It's time to step into the dock, Peter, and prepare ourselves to face the people's judge. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes, I am. Then will us, the defendants, please rise? Yes, sir. Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on factual content. Well, you can't get the size of the country correct. There were two of you. There should have at least been verification. This is unacceptable. Strong start. (laughs) (laughs) Then may I have your grade for factual content? D. It's better than I thought it was going to be, I'll be honest. (laughs) I'll take it as well. (laughs) Okay, Your Honour, may we have your grading for entertainment value? Um, It had some entertainment value to it, I suppose. Yay! <laughs> you, you, you never mentioned the Umchit Shimba dance hall. That didn't come up in my research. No, I, I just remember it from one Michael Palin trip uh, where, where he went to the Umchit Shimba dance hall, which I just, <laughs> just found amusing. If you'd have put that in, I'd have given you a better grade. But I will give you C. Hooray! That's good. Thank you, Judge. Uh, Now, may we have your grading for the inimitable, the mysterious, the Dursley Factor? Well, as I wasn't expecting this, I can't really give it a grade, so I'm afraid it's an E. Oh, my lord. I'm not sure we've ever had an E. Oh, that's one for the history books there. (laughs) Okay, well, there we are. And so we reach the final verdict. But before the judge passes his ruling, Pete, we have an opportunity to enter a plea. If we choose to do so, which we probably should, (laughs) we should make that plea now. Well, we bought snacks, biscuits. If you like dry things, we had everything. We covered the time period. We covered a tricky topic and a country that not a lot of people know about. We brought Uganda to the world, and I think that's worth something. Okay, I, I, let me summarise that, given you, uh, given you two. I think it was a pearl before swine. Right. I think I'm the swine, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, then, Your Honour, the defendants stand before you. Have you reached a verdict? Yes. In which case, I would ask most respectfully for your ruling. Okay, I will be fair, and I won't use the E value in the final score. Hooray! So you will get an unimpressive C minus. Hurrah! 
I'm okay with that. That's, yeah, that's, that's okay. All right. yeah. That's all right. I was just snacking it. <laughs> <laughs> you said it with such conviction. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and so that is our show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We would love to hear from you, and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. Like listener Keb Lives, who consistently gives us five-star reviews on each of our episodes on Good Pods. So thanks, Keb Lives. Thank you, we really appreciate that. He has no standards, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you're on Mastodon, Facebook, Instagram, X, you can find us at HHE Podcast and subscribe to those. You'll get an alert every time we post extra content, trivia, tidbits, news, photos, and more. And we're going to be back again soon with our next episode, episode 86, Mindfulness in the Duneverse during 200 BG to 10,191 AG. Can't you find somebody else? to judge that (laughs) oh dear i'm in trouble i know that Uh, but in the meantime a huge thank you to the judge himself thank you paul i'll I'll just record it for the next one the score is an e whatever you do Uh, that'll be my contribution thank you paul my pleasure and that is it i guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to There's one tiny thing I would like to talk about briefly, Ryan, and that is the Bwindi Impenetrable Forest. The Windy Impenetrable Forest? The Bwindi Impenetrable Forest. It's a large primeval forest. Uh, yeah. It's where a lot of the gorillas live, actually. Okay. Uh, and the only thing I wanted to bring, I said it was going to be very short, is that you can arrange a tour of the Bwindi Impenetrable Forest. And I'd just like to think that you walk up to the edge of the forest and kind of bounce <laughs> off and they say, well, we told you. <laughs> we tried. <laughs> I mean... Uh, no refunds. As advertised, <laughs> no refunds, exactly. Uh, but yes, you, you can actually visit the Bwindi Impenetrable Forest and go looking for gorillas there. So that's one way to spend your time if you find yourself down Uganda way. But I've got to say, I've seen enough videos of people standing in the forest looking at the uh, gorillas and then the gorillas charging at them. And I think, yeah, no, I'm good. Thanks. That's just let the, terrifying. Let the gorillas gorilla. Yeah. Was it the old Not the Nine O'Clock News sketch when Ron Atkinson was dressed up as a gorilla? <laughs> and sort of said, when they caught you, you were wild. He said, no, wild? I was absolutely livid. <laughs> you got to say, though, you can't look at a gorilla. Don't look him in the eye. That's what they say. Look off to the side. That brings me to my interesting fact. Clowns and monkeys, or gorillas and apes, apes really, clowns and apes do not get along. And my theory is the reason <laughs> clowns and apes do not get along yeah. is that because the clowns have white makeup on their eyes, they always think they're being looked at by the clowns. And that's why clowns and apes, mortal enemies. I want to see War of the Planet of the Clown Apes. <laughs> 10% please, Hollywood, if we... <laughs> clowns versus apes. <laughs> I doubt that's going to be made by Hollywood. (laughs) More like Cricklewood. One sec. Oh man, I need a wee now. (laughs) Rub your belly button. (laughs) 
Well, actually, don't rub yeah. your belly button. Well, I've done it now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you shit yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, there was no we, funnily enough. <laughs> actually, um, some of the nerve endings that come from the belly button intermingle with those that come from the bladder. So sometimes if you rub your belly button, you want to go to the lavatory. But that's the opposite of what I want. <laughs> well, I know, but... I've been cheated. Dursley, you prankster. <laughs>